Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, what scenario represents the greatest existential threat to mankind? Supervolcanoes? Asteroids? Disease? Or perhaps rogue robots? If the AI is indeed much, much smarter than us, even super intelligent, the way that some experts uh, predict might happen, there might be not much we can do about it. To go up against a, a new class of organism that is smarter than us in the same way that Albert Einstein is smarter than a dog, essentially, that's, what, that's the kind of intelligence gradient you're, you're talking about. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadure and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday, hump day, two days till the weekend, if we make it, that is. Could an incoming asteroid cause human beings to go the way of the dinosaurs? Will artificial intelligence make the world a better place or make human beings obsolete? Could a massive volcano super eruption thrust the planet into a killer ice age? And what would happen the day after a nuclear war? Brian Walsh, a 15-year veteran reporter and editor of Time, has written a vital work of popular science and investigative journalism that will peel back the layers of complexity around the unthinkable, the end of humankind. He's a graduate of Princeton University and worked as a foreign correspondent, reporter, and editor for Time for over 15 years. He founded the award-winning Echocentric blog on Time.com, and is reported from more than 20 countries on science and environmental stories like SARS, global warming, and extinction. He's the author of End Times, a brief guide to the end of the world. Brian Walsh, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Thank you. It's good to be here. How far back has mankind been, I don't know if I want to use the word obsessed, but certainly uh, how long have we contemplated the end or an apocalypse? I mean, for example... Uh, if we go back to medieval times, was there sort of the equivalent of a Y2K in the year 1000? I'm not sure if there was a, if there was a Y2K in the year 1000, but certainly, you know, you, you can go back eons now. And I think it's always been something that's been part of human nature. Maybe it's some of the issues we have grappling with, with our own mortality. Um, maybe it's a way of making sense of natural events that we can't otherwise explain. But I think this, 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 
concern that any generation could be the last generation has always been part of, of, of humanity. And that the nature of that story has changed over time. You know, it began, I think, <clears throat> perhaps, you know, religious, even tribal, uh, then moved more recently, I think, really into the realm of, of the scientific, really since, you know, since 1945 and, and the, the birth of the atomic bomb, you, you see the realization that human beings can bring about their own end. Um, and increasingly via the same scientific advances that might be improving life elsewhere. So always been part of of, of who we are as a, as, a, as a people, as a species, I think, but it's changing in the, in the nature of it, which sort of reflects whatever is most dominant in society at the time. It certainly seems to be ramping up now, uh, mm-hmm. although, as you point out in the book, we, we tend to lose sight of how good we have it compared to the world that our our great parent our grandparents or great grandparents uh, lived. You know, you look at mortality mm-hmm. rates. Really, uh, since the 1920s, have declined something like 95 percent. Mm-hmm. We have it pretty good. So why why now are we so obsessed with the end? Well, I think those two things can can happen simultaneously. You can both recognize, or, or perhaps at the same time, we can see that. <clears throat> Life on this planet is better on, on on aggregate than it's ever been before, and it basically continues to do that each and every year. But that can exist side by side with this increasing existential risk, because you know th- that's the result of a catastrophe, a truly great catastrophe that would happen very rarely. And so you know things can be going just fine, and almost in the same way you see with perhaps financial crashes, what tends to happen right before it, boom times, things doing well. I think that's sort of similar to what's going on here right now. So an overall improvement in the human condition can really uh, exist side by side with aggregating existential risk. And that's what we're seeing now. Uh, You know, it is better to be on on this planet as a human being today than it's really ever been before on average. And it will continue to get better in the future. Um, At the same time, we're introducing these new kinds of existential risks. And we're setting up the possibility of, you know, when things go wrong, they will go really wrong. And, and that's really what's unique here. In some ways, because we have uh, the power through these new technologies, whether it's something as a bit older like nuclear weapons, whether it's something newer like artificial intelligence or biotechnology, things are going quite well, and then the catastrophe happens and, and you know, up into including the end of the world. So I, I, I think it's, it's not surprising that people feel that way. It's also not surprising that, you know, we don't necessarily recognize that things are, are good. I think in some ways human beings have kind of a, a set level of satisfaction, uh, no matter what external factors are, we kind of go up and down, but basically we say the same. Um, and so we don't really recognize that, hey, this is great, this is better than living in the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th century, and so forth. And so we don't really recognize that we're, we're fairly fortunate now. By the same token, we don't, I think, always recognize, even though we're afraid and, and we think about the end of the world, we're not very good at rationally looking at, okay, what is the nature of that risk? How do we begin to actually act to to change it, which we actually can if we if we try hard. I was reading some of the polling data that you published in the book, Mm. End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, and uh, there was some indication that that people even thought that things were much better uh, Mm. 50 years ago, and and this was during the height of the Cold War, or maybe 60 years ago. And, you know, I've Mm. talked to people of that generation who, you know, lived with this absolute fear, particularly during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I met a couple who actually stopped their car on Santa Monica Boulevard and they hugged each other and were saying goodbye. That's how close mm-hmm. we were you know, to World War III back in October of 62. And, but, but yet people think we, we seem to be closer to midnight on the doomsday clock now than we were back then. 
I know, and in some ways, we we actually, uh, weirdly, we actually are, at least according to the Doomsday Clock, uh, in, in 1963, around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it actually was less than it than it currently is. I think, you know, in terms of why we look back and see the past is better than it was, you know, I wonder about that. I mean, some, to some degree, that's that's sort of a, a kind of nostalgia that, that exists, even for terrible times. I mean, people will be nostalgic for war times, which were, were not, <laughs> people were dying. They were not good by definition, but perhaps, you you know, you feel nostalgic for a time the past when you were young that just might be be the case i think um and in terms of 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 now i think it's also they they you know the baseline shifts with humanity so we get accustomed to like all the amazing things that we have right now that are disposal you and i are, are speaking over skype i mean it's kind of amazing to think we can speak over the internet for free essentially when you know long distance calls back in 50 years ago would have bankrupted both of us trying to do something like this but of course we just you know we sort of a, a hedonistic treadmill where we get used to that no longer feel good about it, but we still feel upset about the things that, that upset us, whether that's something we're, we're fearful about, where we see the world going, or whether we sort of trump up the, the negative things around us. But, you know, we, we, we seem to be lasting in a, se- a sense of dissatisfaction. That's much more uh, persistent than contentment. We get used to contentment very fast, and then we go back to focusing on the things that, that, that annoy us or even scare us. But when we talk about, you know, an existential threat to, to civilization, let's, let's talk about, you know, the experts that assemble, uh, whether it's the, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk uh, or the um, Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute. What do they say are our chances uh, of surviving, let's say, for the next hundred years? Mm-hmm. They they look at, I mean, they look at it in different kinds of ways. I think, you know, they, they've begun to shy away a little bit from putting actual odds on that. Um, you know, if you go back to, I think, a symposium back in 2008 with the Future of Humanity Institute, you know, they were looking at a, a several percent chance in their minds that we wouldn't make it through that century. Uh, now, I think they would definitely judge that that risk has increased because nothing's really happened to decrease it. Uh, nothing has happened over the last 20 years to make uh, existential risk uh, less dangerous. The only thing that's really been improved is the fact that we've gotten better at tracking asteroids, better at potentially deflecting them. But that's a very small risk. The, the things they're really worried about, the experts are really worried about, about, are the man-made ones. And that's something like nuclear war, which is at most certainly at a higher risk now than it was, say, in 2000. Or, of course, even more so, these new emerging technologies, uh, like biotechnology, gene editing, which didn't even exist really 20 years ago, or artificial intelligence, which has grown in leaps and bounds since then. And those are getting more dangerous. Now, what's interesting about them, of course, is that they also create great benefits, which is one of the reasons it's hard to adjust to them. But like that will continue to get worse. So that worries them quite a lot. And then, of course, you have climate change out there, which is the ultimate sort of metastasizing risk. Um, You know, that literally does get worse year by year by year. It grows in in a cumulative kind of way. And so when you look at that, you can definitely imagine, okay, five years from now, will the risk be greater? Almost certainly, because we will not have solved any of these problems. And in the meantime, they will have gotten worse. And, you know, we may even have invented new ones along the way. You mentioned asteroids, and I, I want to jump to that immediately because, of course, it's in the news right True. now. We just had uh, um, a couple of so-called near misses, and it's all relative. Right. But this summer we had, um, uh, I think it was last July, we had a, um, an asteroid. It passed within about 77,000 kilometers, 48,000 mm. miles of Earth, which is 0.19 lunar distances. Now... Apparently, I mean, in astronomical terms, that's very close. But some of these, you know, something the size of a bus, which, uh, you know, could do, or, or a football field in this case, which could do some damage, 
these slip past you know detection. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we at in terms of being able to detect these things? And and is there a planet killer out there floating around that we be, we we may not even mm-hmm. know about? So we're getting better all the time uh, at that. We're we're getting better at detecting them. We are getting better at surveilling them. But like that one really shows that we still miss quite a few. Um, you know, and and asteroid distribution is on a power law. So the smaller they are, the more there are of them. And we've gotten very good actually at finding the ones that are larger than about a kilometer. I mean, that was something NASA was tasked with back in the 90s. At this point, we have well north of 90% of those mapped. And we can be pretty confident, actually quite confident, I would say, that there's not a planet killer lurking out there over the next, I'd say, century. You know, because one of the, again, one of the I suppose, advantages of tracking asteroids is, of course, they work on predictable orbit. So you can kind of, if you track one, if you observe it long enough, you can calculate where it will be over the next several decades. At the same time, there are simply so many of the smaller asteroids, and small is a relative term here. I mean, we're talking about several hundred meters sometimes, uh, big enough to devastate a city, big enough to devastate a state or even a region should they collide with us. Those are really hard to get, you know, and, and NASA had a uh, mandate to find all of those by 2020, I believe. They're not going to to make it you know they, they told that to me quite honestly the resources are not there uh what you really need is a space telescope or a space-based telescope that could be observing these asteroids you know essentially all the time you know the problem with of course anything on land is you know you, you you're blocked by the sun half the time uh you're also blocked by weather much of the rest of the time uh there has been a plan for such a telescope it's not been finalized yet um, and until we, that something like that begins to happen, we're going to be vulnerable to this happening, you know, and it can come close. And, and this one was quite shocking because, you know, to this, like the planetary defense office was very concerned about this. In fact, there was a story that was published by Buzzfeed, I think a few weeks ago with uh, some from FOIA emails from them and they were fairly alarmed. You know, I mean, they saw, they, they recognized that this was a real failure on this, on their part. And I think we can expect more of these at the same time, the chance of being hit by one is still very, very, very small. You know, we could get unlucky. Um, and even, of course, if, if it does impact the Earth, you know, it could easily hit an unpopulated area or the ocean, for that matter, and really not do much damage. So for one to actually collide with, a, say, a city like New York, where I am, would be infinitesimally small, not impossible, and definitely worth spending more money on tracking and also devising a potential defense uh, mechanism if that was the case. Uh, in, in in chapter one, you talk about asteroids. The sub the title is "The Universe is Trying to Kill Us," and and that is really kind of a, a theme that in, in in that chapter is that we do live in a very hostile corner of the universe. And if it's not asteroids, uh, you know, we, cosmic radiation, mm. uh, sun flares. Uh, I'm trying to remember whether you address you know the possibility of a of a another Carrington type event, an EMP, which to me is. I mean, we're apparently we're overdue for one, and our grid is not mm-hmm. particularly well uh, or well guarded, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I, I don't address that in the book, but by all means, that is very important. You know, I, in the end, I sort of I was close to doing it, but you know, I was trying to actually keep it to a brief guide, as the book actually promises. That was becoming harder and harder the longer the book got. Um, but absolutely, I mean, this, the Carrington event happened, I believe, it was 1859. You know, so not even a hundred, or you know, barely more than 150 years ago. At the time, that would have had if that if that occurs today, it has a tremendous 
catastrophic impact on our electrical grid. You know, it's knocking out vast swaths of it here in North America and much of the rest of the world. And while no one will, it, it, it's not deadly in the way, you know, a volcanic eruption or an asteroid impact is, the knock-on effects for society, for the economy, would just be immense, really, um, and, and hard to come back from. You know, our grid, even in the best of times, is vulnerable to accidents, to hacking. Um, the real concern there would be, okay, that, that happens, especially if you don't prepare for it, um, you, it takes a long time to repair some of those, uh, some of the nodes of the grid, the transformers and so forth. So we could be in the dark for quite a while. And you can only imagine what that means for, for healthcare, what it means for public safety, what it means for the economy, for moving around key goods for medicine. So that's quite scary. And, and that's much more likely to happen on a, on a shorter time frame than anything like a, a major asteroid strike or a volcano. It won't result in, in, in the end of human beings. But it would be probably worse than anything we've ever really encountered in the modern world before. Right. I, I'd read an estimate, and I don't know how accurate this is, but within one year, without electricity, and again, as you pointed, how dependent we are, water filtration, mm -hmm. uh, you know, delivery, just-in-time delivery of food in, in major centers, uh, within mm -hmm. a year, we'd be looking at a 90% mortality rate. 90%? Mm -hmm. Does that seem plausible to you? I mean, that seems... So Somewhat high to me. I mean, ninety percent is a lot of people, um, and you know they're. But at the same time, you know, we we've never encountered anything like this, um, and we are so dependent on these machines. We're so dependent on the ability to move easily from place to place. All that you know, it, it's you know, even though our cars might run on, you know, petrol, and obviously it wouldn't be impacted by a solar storm. So many things would be impacted by that. So much of 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 our economy is a just in time economy there's so little inventories out there such that if it gets interrupted in any kind of way we wouldn't be able to respond to it and one of the things about a solar storm which makes it similar to some of the other really big catastrophes i talk about like a super volcano for instance is the global nature of it and that's really unprecedented like you can imagine the worst disasters that we experienced like say the uh, tsunami in 2004 um or you know major earthquakes that have killed even hundreds of thousands of people those are are, are beyond terrible but they influence and they affect a sort of circumscribed geographic area. And what that means is that people outside that area can can help. You know, we can send aid. We can send assistance. People in the affected areas can flee to areas that are safe. A global catastrophe means there may not be a safe place. And that's not something we've ever experienced before. The closest that you can really get to that is a major plague or epidemic where, you know, you literally begin get afraid of your neighbor. And what I be really worry about that is that, you know, there's no backing for that. You know, the United States is a very geographically distributed country. So, you know, you can have a, a hurricane in New Orleans, or the rest of the country can can pitch in. That wouldn't be possible here. And I don't know how we'd really respond to that. I'd really worry about you know, this our, our civic fabric, really. And that's where you wonder about, you know, this government or any, I think government really having the ability to respond to that, uh, having the ability to actually marshal public safety through something that would last for quite a while. That's another difference here that this is not something that would be over in a few days, like a hurricane, or you know, or even like a few seconds, like a, a, an earthquake. This would last for months and months, if not longer. Right. Uh, you mentioned volcanoes and and mm -hmm. the super volcano eruptions, and mm -hmm. uh, I was reading recently about the the the, the, the Toba eruption, what seventy seventy five thousand years ago, mm -hmm. uh, where the, by some estimates the human breeding population was down to somewhere between one thousand and 10,000 pairs. I mean, this came close to mm -hmm. just wiping humans off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, something like a th uh, was a cooler temperatures for about a thousand mm -hmm. years and so forth. I mean, what 
volcanoes existing today, active volcanoes, could prove to be another Toba? Well, certainly the one I focus on the most in uh, in my book is Yellowstone, which I think a lot of people don't imagine as an active volcano, but it is a volcanic system. It has erupted uh, three times over the last, I believe, about 2.1 million years, last time about 600, 640,000 years ago. And of course, if you go to Yellowstone, you see all the geysers. Well, that's that's the effect of that volcanic system. If that were to erupt, I think you would you know you would see continental scale effects. I mean, devastation obviously locally, but you would see volcanic uh, ash, volcanic cloud that would spread from one end of the coast to the other. That would have a devastating impact on human health, on animal health, on our grid for that matter. It could actually knock out our grid as well. But then, <clears throat> even more so, it would have a global climatic effect, which we've seen before. We've seen what happens after big volcanoes explode. Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines uh, erupted in 1991. It led to a 0.5 Celsius drop in average global temperatures for a few years. And you can only imagine a supervolcano, which is you know several orders of magnitude larger than that, the impact that would have. We saw it with Tambora, another volcano in Indonesia back in 1815, created what was known as the year without a summer. All throughout much of Europe and North America, cooling that was so uh, was, was so major that people, you know, that's literally what they saw. They, you know, there was no summer. People had to flee, uh, you know, certain areas that were essentially struck by famine. So, you know, we have to worry about Yellowstone. There's actually another one in California called Long Valley, which is a dormant one but could explode again. New Zealand has one. Actually, the most recent supervolcanic eruption was in New Zealand 26,000 years ago, which is sort of amusing when you think about it because New Zealand sort of become like a a place to hide from the apocalypse, and yet it might be the worst place to go in the event of a volcano. Um, but there's about 20 or so out there around the world, and what's concerning is that while we've done pretty good at keeping tabs and monitoring the volcanoes here in the U.S. and, and some other places like Japan, that's not the case around the world. And there's huge gaps in that in that monitoring system, which is important because if you can get some warning, that'll make a huge difference in our ability to endure uh, an event like that. If we're caught off guard, then we're in real trouble. You mentioned Yellowstone. Is that inevitability? Mm -hmm. Is it just is is it a question of when and not if? Mm -hmm. It's mostly a question of uh, of when and, and not if. Um, there is a chance that uh, the movement of, of the continental plates will actually end up putting uh, thicker and thicker rock over uh, the Yellowstone magma plume, such that it might actually uh, cap off and prevent an eruption from ever happening. But scientists do expect that eventually, just as it has in the past, it will erupt again. Now. Again, we're looking at most likely something on the lines of 100,000 years, if not longer. Um, we would also probably have significant warning before that would were to happen. Uh, but, you know, no guarantee here. I mean, this is the nature of these kind of events because they've really never happened in human experience. It's difficult for us to put a probability on it in a way that's meaningful. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah, also, of course, there's there's a limited amount of things we can do about supervolcano. It's not like asteroids where we can create a tracking program. We can actually work on how we would deflect an incoming asteroid. In the case of volcanoes, we don't have a means to stop them yet. So the best we can do is monitor them and prepare should that day happen. And certainly Yellowstone, yes, it's most likely a, a question of when. Uh, chances are something else will get us first. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, be spending, as I argue in the book, a lot more money on that monitoring both there in the United States, but elsewhere around the world, to ensure that even with that small chance that something happens, at least we're ready, at least we're prepared, at least we're warned. More of my conversation with Brian Walsh when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. 
Colleen Forges is back with us, our certified nutritional therapy consultant, and she manages the full script dispensary at strangeplanet.ca. Colleen, welcome back. Hi, Richard. You know, as a kid, I remember receiving a spoonful of castor oil. And my gosh, that was just horrible. But it's good for us. What is this I see on the full script dispensary? It's a castor oil pack. That's right, Richard. Castor oil pack is something that was actually made popular by Edgar Casey. He spoke about uh, castor oil packs a lot in his readings, but it's excellent for lymph flow, blood flow, so improving circulation throughout the body. And it's a great liver support and detox, helps to relieve constipation. A little castor oil rubbed on the scalp can even help with hair regrowth. Ah, so you don't have to take it orally. That's right. What I'm talking about today is actually a pack that's made with flannel. You lay it perhaps on the liver if you want to help the liver. So there's a process. And on the Fullscript website, there are complete directions on how to actually create the pack. And we also have a listing of all of the items necessary to create a pack. So people, when they go to Fullscript, can go right to the button I created for castor oil packs. It's got directions and all of the materials necessary to do a, a castor oil pack. To register for the full script dispensary, just go to strangeplanet.ca, click on the button and type in your email. And don't forget, 10% off on all orders. Talk again next week, Colleen. Take care, Richard. Full script, nature grade, science made. These products have not been assessed by the FDA and are not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Science writer Brian Walsh is here. Uh, Let's talk about disease and um, pandemics. Uh, You know, just seasonal flu kills, Mm -hmm. I think, somewhere between 300 and 650,000 people globally every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet we focus, we're we're focusing on, you know, we're worried about avian flu and and things Mm -hmm. like SARS. Do you think that uh, we are, we're blowing some of these these threats out of proportion? Or is there another, I don't know, a, a Spanish flu uh, out there that's, mm. again, going to wash ashore and, and it's inevitable? I think that's a really good way to look at the difference between a catastrophic or accidental threat and what I would argue is like an ordinary threat. And the fact that hundreds of thousands of people die from influenza every year is a tragedy. And it's, a, and, and one, it's one result of the fact that we've not invested enough in better vaccine production system and vaccine design systems that will create a vaccine that's actually 100% effective, which the seasonal flu vaccine most certainly is not. Um, at the same time, the reason why that doesn't get the attention uh, it might otherwise get is because it's kind of baked in uh, to literally the year-by-year risk of the world. In the same way we know, you know, a certain number of people will die in, in plane crashes, a certain number of people will die from flu, it it doesn't rock society in the way that an unexpected and catastrophic threat being realized does. So that's what's so scary about something new and dangerous like an entirely unprecedented disease where we don't know how it react, we don't know how bad it will get, or the idea of something like a like a, a new flu pandemic, a new flu strain emerging, where again, you know, we don't know how it will, it will react. It might be something like 2009, the last flu pandemic, where, as it turned out, 
it's a very weak strain of the flu. In fact, it really didn't kill more people than the flu does in a, in a normal year. But there was no way of knowing that when that pandemic be- happened. And I remember covering it. And there was a lot of fear and uncertainty around that because you don't know, is this going to be the one that's like 1918, you know, a, a, a pandemic that on the high end of estimates may have killed as many as 100 million people around the world. Um, and so that's why uh, these risks are difficult to really uh, get your head around in some ways because they, by definition, they are unprecedented. By by definition, we have not encountered them before, so we have not baked them into our understanding of what is and isn't dangerous. And we also don't really know how to respond to them or how to price them in the right kind of way. But my argument is because they can be so devastating and because the effects can be so great, even though they're unlikely, even though they are almost certainly not going to happen, that doesn't excuse us from trying to take the steps we need to prevent that from being the case. Because if they do happen, they will be so terrible as to really create havoc on a, on a scale we haven't experienced before. You know, so it doesn't mean we don't ignore the sort of workaday threats like standard flu, but it does mean we need to be more imaginative when it comes to preparing for things we haven't experienced before. I don't know if there's any way to calculate this, but I'm wondering if you look back at the Spanish flu and, you know, we had veterans from World War One returning on packed uh, passenger ships, which may have sort of provided the incubation and and um, and then we know how it took off from there. But but given that type of, of uh, pathogen, and we bring that into modern times with with jet travel and so forth and the ability to travel mm-hmm. so quickly and its ability to spread so quickly. What do you think the death toll would be like today? Hmm. That's an interesting thought experiment. Um, I, I'm not sure. Like on one hand, it's twofold because on one hand you have uh, antibiotics, for instance. Uh, back during the 1918 flu, a lot of the mortality was actually caused by secondary infections that took hold after the flu had had kind of ravaged the the system of a, an affected person in their lungs and so you would get pneumonia for instance and at the time there was no there were no no penicillin no other antibiotics could be used to halt that infection now we still have those drugs uh, their their effectiveness is sometimes challenged because of resistance but that would be a big difference and of course there's any any number of other kinds of supportive care that could reduce the overall fatality rate at the same time as you note the disease would move around the world far faster than it did in 1918. Uh, it would get around the world within, I'm guessing, a couple months, perhaps, if not even faster, depending on how contagious it was. And this was a very contagious virus. Um, and that would mean it, it, would, it would spread far too quickly for any kind of vaccine to come into play. You know, it, it, as we saw in 2009, it took months before a vaccine was ready to be delivered. Uh, never would have gotten to the point where we could have vaccinated the entire American population before the virus had spread everywhere. Um, so my feeling is it would be far worse than anything we've experienced since 1918. Uh, would it be as terrible? I don't think so. Also, of course, that was, as you know, accentuated by the fact, you know, we were in a war with all the all the sort of unhygienic conditions that brings. People as a whole were less healthy. You know, they, they weren't getting as much food and so forth. Um, but I still think it would be it would be something worse than we can we've ever experienced before. And then we don't know what the economic effects would be of that because we have a much more globalized economy than we did in 1918. And so quite literally, if, uh, you know, Japan catches a cold, we're all going to feel it. Um, and so the breakup and there is, you know, there's only damage that would do to the global uh, supply chain would in some ways perhaps be even worse than the, the death toll itself um, and the knock on effects that would have around politics around the economy would be uh, pretty terrifying. And that's why Every doctor, every infectious disease expert is so worried about the flu. That's why they keep tabs on what's coming out of, of birds. That's why they keep such a close look at what new patients are coming in, because they know that from past experience, it can get very, very bad. This is a very effective killer 
if the right strain uh, arises. Let's talk for a few moments about biotech because it is a it's such a double-edged sword as you point out in the book. Thanks to biotech, you know, we were on the cusp of being able to to you know to grow our own organs, a replacement organs in in a, in a lab. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's getting to the point now where we could think about almost you know extending life, so to the point where you're essentially just re-sleeving your consciousness into a new body. <laughs> uh, but yeah. that that comes with so many so many pitfalls. Talk to me about the downside of biotech as you see it. I'm quite worried about biotech. I mean, I, I really come to the conclusion that that is the scientific advance that I worry about the most. And the reason that's the case is, in, in a way, it's, it sort of continues from your previous question about uh, natural disease and, and the flu. We know that disease can be a killer. You know, infectious disease has killed more human beings than anything else on this planet, any, any more than any war, any more than any natural disasters. So we know that for a fact. At the same time, we know that disease, as it emerges out of nature, tends to be somewhat limited by evolution. You don't really ever get a virus that is both incredibly deadly and very contagious, simply because it will not thrive in the environment. However, with these new forms of biotechnology, with new gene editing, new genetic engineering, could permit us, in fact, we, we know it can, to engineer viruses that would actually be able to do that, that would be both incredibly deadly and potentially incredibly contagious. And what's particularly scary about that is that that's getting easier and easier to do all the time. It's 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 a good compare to nuclear weapons. Obviously, a tremendous existential threat. But at the end of the day, you know, really, what we discovered is it, it takes a nation state to create a nuclear weapon. It takes it it, it it sends a lot of signs. You can kind of track it. We see that with countries like Iran or North Korea. Um, Biology and biotechnology, on the other hand, because of this dual nature, because we get both tremendous benefits from it along with this risk, much harder to track. Far more people can are know how to do this kind of work now than know, for instance, how to put together a nuclear weapon. And the nature of that is that it, that number is going to increase in the future. And that's where comparison to computer programming is really, uh, I think, really instructive. You know, 40 years ago, you had to use gigantic mainframe computers. You needed experts to, to program computers, all of which would be slow and expensive. Fast forward to now, and tens of millions of people can do programming. You know, tens of millions of people could unleash malware in the world, which they do. You know, that costs the global economy tens of billions of dollars each year. That's where biology is going. It's going towards being able to be programmed like a computer and eventually perhaps almost as easily. And what that means is that that could mean there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who would have this ability. And the more people who have it, the better the chance that someone will do something wrong. It might be on purpose. It might be a terror group. It might be, you know, an omnicidal maniac for that matter. It might be someone who's trying to do something good and makes a mistake, you know, or you're doing research on, on a virus that gets released out of the lab, which, by the way, happens not infrequently. And so you put all that together. That's why I'm so worried about that, because the offense is getting ahead of the defense around this. And you're getting more and more people with the ability to do that. That makes it very, very hard to police. And that's what makes it so dangerous. I think it was uh, Stephen Hawking who who talked about artificial intelligence, uh, again, posing perhaps the greatest existential threat to humanity. Mm-hmm. And artificial intelligence is also being looked on, looked upon as, you know, this, this uh, new in- industrial revolution that, that is going to you know, surpass all other human development. It may be, as you point out in the book, the last invention we ever need. Uh, why is it perceived as an existential threat? Well, it's, it's perceived as an existential threat, I think, for this reason. I mean, think about human beings. Why are human beings at the top of the food chain here 
on the planet Earth. Uh, it's not because we're stronger than all the other species out there. It's not because we're faster. It's because we're smarter. And we'd be able to use that intelligence to essentially dominate the globe, to spread to every corner of the planet, to you know, really master any other species. And we can see the, what that means for other species when you look at the rate of extinction, for instance, or you look at the rate of endangered animals. Essentially, that happens because we just need to expand and we take their, their living space. And now what worries us about artificial intelligence is if we are able to create something that can become as intelligent as a human being, and if that's possible, almost certainly would become much more intelligent than a human being, potentially much faster. Uh, you put the human beings in a, a state where they're no longer the smartest uh, species on this planet. They're no longer the smartest organism on this planet. That's scary because we, we know that's where our power derives from. So if AI were able to supersede us in that way, the concern, I think, is it's not like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator, like, like the robots wanting to have some kind of revenge on us and eliminate us that way. Rather, the robots or the AI might be programmed with some kind of goal and essentially see us as an obstacle to that goal in some ways. And in doing so, just the way that other species on this planet can sometimes be seen as obstacles to the lives we want, the space we want, the resources we want, the same thing could happen to us in regards to the AI. And if the AI is indeed much, much smarter than us, even super intelligent, the way that some experts uh, predict might happen, there might be not much we can do about it. Uh, you know, uh, to, to go up against a, a, a new class of organism that is as, you know, as smarter than us in the same way that Albert Einstein is smarter than a dog, essentially. That's what that's the kind of intelligence gradient you're, you're talking about. There's really no way to win. Uh, and that's why what's really important is how do we handle AI before it gets to that point. Uh, and that's why, you know, people like Stephen Hawking were so worried about it. They see that as essentially, you know, us going the same way as, as other species that have been, that we ourselves have, have squeezed out of this planet. Artificial intelligence, though, it, it, my limited understanding, it's, it's based mm. on algorithms that are created by mm. humans. Couldn't we create an algorithm uh, that sort of uh, approximates a sort of a morality? Uh, we, that's exactly what a lot of very smart people are, are trying to to do, the, the question is, um, how would you actually go about doing that? Um, for one thing, human beings have argued over what is and isn't moral uh, just between ourselves for thousands of years. So now we're going to ask um, computer programmers in Silicon Valley to decide on moral questions and then figure out how to program that into an AI. That's, that's tough. I mean, and you can see actually a real world example of that in the challenge over self-driving cars. How do you program a self-driving car to act in a morally maximal way you know it, how do you choose it how does it drive who does it you know if it's in a situation where oh no there's you know a child on one side or you know you might risk the life of the driver what does it do and so you can see like those moral problems are hard enough for us to grapple with to figure out how to program them to a machine is incredibly difficult and i think what we really worry about is not again that you know you're programming machines to be evil and somewhere malevolent Rather, um, they're programmed with a certain kind of goal. You know, a, a really canonical example here is uh, the idea, like, imagine you create a super intelligent AI and you essentially you, it's programmed with a goal to make paper clips. And this is something uh, Nick Bostrom at the Future of Humanity Institute has, has sort of postulated as a joke, but uh, an instructive one. And, okay, this super intelligent AI is going to make paper clips and that's its only instruction. It will, nothing will get in the way of it making paper clips, including us. It will say, like, the atoms in your body would be better used to make paper clips and that sounds crazy but like it gets to the point of where when we think about ai we can't think of it the way we can with a human beings it will not be reasonable 
in the way a human being will do. It will not make the mistakes a human being will do. And that what makes it so dangerous, if that's possible, of course, and that's what makes that effort as, as you actually program it so important and why, you know, it's almost like the creation of an atomic bomb. Be very careful before you get to that moment because when that moment of a nuclear chain reaction breaks out, uh, in the case of an AI, there might be not be any going back. Um, now, the one other side here is that it may not be possible. And there's a lot of scientists who will tell you that we'll never get to human-level AI. We'll never certainly get to superintelligent AI, in which case we're not, we don't have that much to be worried about. But, you know, if we can, that's potentially incredibly dangerous. I think Stephen Hawking's right about that. Uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, discussed. It, it's not being discussed by politicians. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we're in a, endless uh, campaign cycles, but mm-hmm. we have an election coming up here as well. Nobody's mm-hmm. talking about this, and, and it, it, I, I doubt they're probably even equipped to talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I mean, shouldn't we be having this conversation? Shouldn't this be dominating public discourse? Uh, I mean, if, do you mean AI specifically or yes, yes. more broadly? Uh, no, yeah. AI. I mean, it's, yeah, it is it's it is actually beginning to leak into I mean, here in the United States, we have uh, Andrew Yang, uh, you know, a Democratic presidential candidate and outsider, but someone who has talked a lot about, you know, how the world is going to change in the future under the forces of, of AI, of automation. He tends to focus more on the risks from uh, job loss, of course, as we see more jobs be automated than he does necessarily on, on the concern around the existential threat of, of AI. But at least that's beginning to talk about it. But but you're right. I think I think people are afraid to talk about it. Politicians certainly because they, they don't want to look uh, silly, perhaps like it sounds like they're they're worried about something that will never happen. Um, I think you have a strong, although it's less strong than it used to be, um, force in the community itself, the AI community, not to talk about this because you know, who wants to talk about the downside of their work? Like you want to focus on all the amazing things your AI can do, all, all the ways it can help human beings, which are real. Uh, but no one really wants to think about that extreme downside risk that it could go very wrong so much so that, you know, you lead to the end of the world. Um, and I think at the end of the day, also, this is something that always seems out in the future. This is something it shares with other existential threats. Politicians rarely focus on them because they can sort of bet most likely, you know, accurately you know, it's not going to happen on their watch. They're not going to be judged by this uh, from voters. So let's not worry about it too much. Um, so put all those together. That's in, in, in part why you rarely see uh, real real planning around this. Um, I, I hope that will begin to change. What worries me is that this um, this science and this field can move so quickly, much more quickly than politicians uh, possibly can. Uh, the chance of being caught off guard is just really great. We are truly living in an age of anxiety, and we see this now with with young children who are mm-hmm. not only anxious about the future, depressed, despondent in some cases, even hurting themselves, which is just horrible. We have younger people now saying they're not going to have children. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we temper this doom and gloom, uh, and I mean, and still, you know, survive as a species? I think a big part of that is is a better historical understanding would be really helpful. I mean, we, we started this conversation talking about this paradox we live in where on one hand, you know, life on this planet on aggregate has gotten better and better and better than it's ever been before. But we also live with these very real existential threats. Um, I think people forget about the first part of that. Um, they don't realize that, for one thing, human beings have, through most of our existence, lived under tremendous threat and risk and danger. That, in fact, the state of uncertainty, the state of fear, perhaps, um, 
has been the human condition for much longer than the relatively nice modern world that we have here. And so when they say like, how do you, you know, how can you possibly have children because you don't know what's going to happen to the world or you're worried it's going to, it's going to end or catastrophe is going to happen. I mean, that's been the lot that human beings have always had. Um, we've never had a guarantee of the future. We've often lived under, under tremendous strain and threat and fear. And yet we, we pushed forward. And so that's what I would, I would say like you, if you don't want to have children, by all means, of course, I, I happen to have a a two-year-old and and you know he was really an inspirational force in writing this book but at the same time of course you know people should make their own decisions around that but i do you know i see that and i i, I wish i could do something to alleviate that anxiety i, I want to tell you yes of course these are real fears but that's not a, a reason to to give up uh and and part of that is because human beings have endured worse and will probably endure worse in the future um and i wish it were otherwise but that is the way it is, and yet we continue. Yet we continue to grow, and yet we continue to live and survive. And I think that's the message I would I would try to get. I'm not sure that would work. Um, and I'm sure you, if you go back during the uh, Cold War, you had people making the same argument uh, around the fear of nuclear war. So I, I, you know, this is not new. Is 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 something I would say. And if you, if you understand it's not new, then maybe you can take some solace in the fact that you know, ancestors, you're, you know, people who were on this planet before you were able to grapple with these issues and yet continue. Uh, we're not paralyzed by that fear. End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, Asteroids, Supervolcanoes, Rogue Robots, and more. Brian, thanks so much. I enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you haven't visited my Strange Planet shop, what's the holdup? Just have a peek at some of these amazing, unique designs created exclusively for Strange Planet by Atomic Werewolf Studios in Arizona. A new batch of great t-shirts just arrived, including one for the uh, politically incorrect crowd, shall we say, and I'm one. It's called the Toxic Male t-shirt. And those of you concerned about protecting America's electrical grid from an EMP attack, well, there's one there for you too. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Check it out. Have fun. Get your Christmas shopping done early and help support my work. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca. Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, the possible impeachment of President Trump. And here's the, the reason why I'm suggesting that as ridiculous as this is, as hollow of these charges are against Donald Trump, the fact that it's going forward indicates there's a conspiracy to take down the president. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.